0: Hello, Pedra Pearls listeners, and welcome back to our final Monday re-release of the year. It's December 18th. We are closing out the year with another Points of Discussion, Should Pediatric Hydratinitis Superativa Be Treated Aggressively? Brought to you by the Acne and HS Focus Study Group. This program originally aired in May of 2022. Please enjoy. Hello and welcome to Pedra's Points of Discussion podcast. Our debate topic this month is should hydrotonitis Superativa be treated aggressively or not aggressively? This program is brought to you by the Piedra Acne, and HS Focus Study Group. Before we begin, it's important to note the views and information expressed during this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance. The purpose of this podcast is to be thought-provoking and to stimulate new ideas, new collaboration, and novel research. Any reference to medical treatment or disease management is for this purpose only. It is not an endorsement by PEDRA, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Any decisions related to medical care should be made in consultation with a qualified healthcare provider. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce your moderator for this program, Dr. Irene Lara Corrales. She's the Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Toronto and a staff physician in pediatric dermatology at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada. She is currently the Pediatric Dermatology Fellowship Director, and she also co-chairs the Acne and HS-Focused Study Group for PEDRA. At this time, I'll turn it over to you, Dr. Lara Corrales.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. So we're here today with Dr. Jasmine Kirkorian, a dermatologist and chief of dermatology at Children's National Hospital, and Dr. E.C. Andrews from Spectrum Dermatology in Arizona. And we are talking about hydrodonitis superativa in pediatrics. So hydrodonitis suppurativa is one of those emerging skin diseases that sometimes keeps us pediatric dermatologists up at night because we're dealing with more severe disease and we're seeing it more and more in our pediatric patients. And we have lots of questions about how to manage these kids. So suppurativa it's a chronic inflammatory skin disease that most commonly affects the folds. Um, I'm not sure about you, but definitely I feel that there has been like many, many more cases coming up to my clinics over the last years and I'm seeing more and more severe disease in younger kids. Unfortunately, sometimes when they come to see us, they already have scars and they have more severe disease. And because there's not a lot of research that we have been doing and publishing on hydradenar superativa in pediatrics, sometimes the big question is management and what are we treating these patients with. So how we manage this patients is probably one of the biggest challenges that we face in our pediatric dermatology practices. So what we wanted to discuss today is different approaches on the management of these patients. So uh, I feel that there are two different kind of boats. Like one, uh, people are being more aggressive, trying to really burn out this condition as soon as it is diagnosed and others are a little bit less aggressive, uh, especially with our pediatric patients that are presenting very, very young. For the purpose of this discussion, we're going to be defining non-aggressive treatments as topical interventions, oral antibiotics, zinc or other supplements, and lifestyle modifications, and aggressive treatments as uh, any other systemic uh, modalities like biologics, Uh, hormonal treatments, surgery and laser and kind of more interventional uh, procedures for the management of HS. So now we're going to go to Dr. Kirkorian to talk about these non-aggressive treatments and why we need to consider them in our pediatric dermatology patients.
2: You know, I think it is reasonable in mild disease to always build our step ladder of therapy, um, especially when we don't have evidence of scarring fistula tract formation. Um, However, you know, I'll caveat that if you do have evidence of aggressive disease, what we're saying now really doesn't hold. But in the setting of mild disease, you know, we can ask the question, is there evidence that every patient with mild disease progresses to severe disease? Um, And we don't necessarily have that data, so we don't have to proceed with the assumption that every child that has, let's say, comedones in their axilla or has one furuncle will definitely, with necessity, go on to be severe. Uh, that being said, we need to monitor these children closely and give anticipatory guidance to the families. Um, and this is going to be a long-standing relationship for this, um, you know, cr- chronic disease. But if we take the example of a child with mild disease, I think it is, you know, eminently reasonable to consider um, uh, what we're calling mild uh, treatments before we move on, as we would in any disease, up our therapeutic ladder. So, you know, to that extent, um, our topicals in this Group play a very important role, so we do use, you know, a variety of topical, typically topical antibiotics, um, both washes and leave-on products such as benzoyl peroxide, chlorhexidine, um, clindamycin. Uh, obviously, we don't want to use clindamycin as monotherapy because we have we know that the likelihood of developing resistance is quite high. Um, there's some studies looking at resorcinol. And in, as an adjunctive to that, many of us consider using, you know, medications such as zinc orally. Uh, it can cause some GI distress, but otherwise it's quite a safe medication and has some data as being anti-inflammatory and is really, I think, well-received by parents as an option before we start talking about, um, you know, systemic medications that pose higher risks.
1: So if you see one of these patients with mild disease that only has open comedones, In uh, the axillary area, what is the preferred treatment? Like, what is your first step to manage them?
2: Yeah, so the comedonal um, prominent HS is quite interesting. And I think then you want to have comedolytic therapy. Uh, So this is a circumstance in which, in addition to benzoyl peroxide, I would consider a topical retinoid, treating it really more like acne, maybe doing um, some gentle comedone extraction. You don't want to manipulate the follicle too much. I do see this sometimes in children with um, trisomy 21 as a phenotype, and then some people just seem to have this as their phenotype of their HS. Of course, it could be admixed with much more severe stage HS, in which case you're going to treat aggressively. Um, But I think retinoids do have a role in that circumstance. Um, And then hair removal, we didn't overtly discuss, but, um, you know, gentle hair removal and even considering laser hair removal in this circumstance could be quite beneficial. Um, Whereas I think in more severe disease, it's really not in my opinion, quite effective. At that point, you're dealing with scarring and tracts and you have bigger fish to fry. But in mild disease, in parents who have the funds, because this is not covered by insurance typically, um, I do think laser hair removal could be a reasonable option.
1: And when do you kind of start taking that next step to consider oral antibiotics?
2: Right. So I think when you have inflammatory lesions, that's when you need to at least consider the oral antibiotics. And by that, I mean for uncles or draining... Um, you know, a draining nodule. Uh, the parents will often tell you, in the patient, it's the same spot that keeps getting inflamed, and so on. Um, so, if unless you have just one, in which case you might consider intralesional kenalog, which has some data. But if you start to have multiple um, or multiple sites involved, even if there's only one or two, that is a time to consider it. I think the caveat to that is I'm not super impressed with the durability of response. So you might get better while on the antibiotics, but then what's your end game? Same thing with acne. Like, what's your end game? You're going to just be on this for life. Um, So there are rare patients in whom there is this flaring that you can control with short bursts of doxycycline, for example. Um, But I still think you have to ask yourself the question. I know I'm arguing the mild, but I still think you have to ask yourself, well, what is the end game question? And maybe that would trigger you to move on to more severe so-called aggressive options, even if their disease presentation wasn't so severe.
1: Many of our patients end up coming to the eMERGE when they have one of these uh, boils and they end up being sometimes even admitted for more acute antibiotic therapy. Do you think that swabs and kind of, uh, there's kind of a little bit of that back and forth, like the role of bacteria in HS. And um, do you think there is a role for sometimes taking
2: swabs or ruling out uh, infection in these patients? I think it's so difficult to get a real sense of what is an infection versus colonization, you know. It seems like, from my understanding, that a lot of this is the immune systems you know, dysregulated response to normal flora or flora that uh, colonizes the tracts, the biofilm. So that is why I don't really think the antibiotics are doing much except perhaps as being anti-inflammatory. Or maybe they're reducing the numbers enough that, you know, you don't have such a brisk inflammatory response. I do think a child who's been to the emergency room, and I know Izzy will get into this multiple times, Either it's an access to care issue, which of course is the prim- primary problem, but it also can be indication for more aggressive therapy. If you're going to the ER and you're requiring admission, even if your disease from a pheno- like phenotypic standpoint doesn't look that bad, you're severe. You need to be evaluated. You either need better access to care or something else is going on and we need to treat more aggressively.
1: And I know we mentioned lifestyle modifications at some of the kind of less aggressive modalities that we can suggest when we see these patients. What do you think about that? Like it's, uh, there's a lot of controversy around it too.
2: Yeah, it's such a hard one. Like everybody could benefit from lifestyle modification because, and it's very easy to say and prescribe and it's extremely difficult to implement. So I would challenge any of us who's telling a patient to do lifestyle modification, like what is it that you're telling them to do? Like eat less food, like walk more, that's not practical. You have to actually, I would like better data on like what is an actual effective counseling and then how does a patient implement it effectively? So that's one issue. We do have a referral obesity um, clinic that feed, you know that has a lot of um, these tools and yet I don't see a lot of patients necessarily successfully changing their lifestyle. So because this is such a social issue, do we have places that we can safely play? Do we have safe access to food and so on? I think lifestyle modification is critical to counsel on on every visit with the understanding that we need to make sure that we're empathetic. Like, can you really implement this? And then the other issue is, let's say someone does lose weight. So we have children who sometimes undergo surgical procedures for weight loss, like gastric bypass or or what have you. And I have seen children that actually didn't improve in that scenario. So what that leads me to say is, while I suspect weight loss has benefits regardless, right? We know it's gonna affect your cardiovascular health, you know, all these other issues, reduce your risk of diabetes. So it's worth it regardless. But whether we can say it definitively improves HS, I'm not sure. And I think we need to study more. Um, But certainly it's a worthwhile thing to pursue avoidance of tobacco smoke, um, increased exercise. Now, when you tell someone with severe HS to exercise and they can barely walk or move their arms, not really practical. So I think for me, I would like a lot more data, maybe every SPD for someone to present like an actual practical lecture on how does one modify one's lifestyle? Because I don't know that there's great evidence for that. And and you're completely right,
1: because we see HS in patients that have normal weight as well. Like this is not something exclusively that we see in obese patients and, or those that have uh, endocrine or hormonal uh, abnormalities. So it's definitely, I agree, we need much more evidence about this.
2: Yeah, and have obviously Any last we know... thoughts
1: of how to um, manage less aggressively our patients? Do you have any other tricks that you...
2: um No, I you... think we've covered the tricks. I guess one other thing I would just plug, which is from your paper, our paper, is that family history is so common in our patients and underappreciated. So, You know, if you ask, well, do you have HS, they'll say no, but do you get boils, et cetera, then many times it'll be many generations, again, pointing to the fact that this is highly genetic and, you know, there's going to be that, again, that gets back to, like, does lifestyle help you if you have this? But um, I would say if you have a family history and a child presents early, that may be the time that we can implement these mild um, measures and have them be effective. In other words, we want to capture people when they are mild and try these interventions, um, whether they be 11 before they come to us at 16 with six years delay in diagnosis. Um, so if we are going to implement the so-called non-aggressive therapies, we also need to do work at capturing people early when those are likely to be effective. So thank you
1: so much, Dr. Korean for uh, talking about these non-aggressive treatments today. Um, So we're going to um, finish this episode here and please join us in our next episode with Dr. Andrews to talk about the more aggressive treatments that we have for patients with HS.
0: Hello and welcome back to episode two in our Points of Discussion podcast.
1: Thank you for joining us for episode two. So we are here with Dr. Andrews and we are now going to talk about more aggressive treatments that we use to treat are pediatric patients with hydradenitis superativa or HS. Dr.
3: Andrews. Hi, so um, just to to kind of define what we mean or what I mean by aggressive treatments, um, in addition to things like um, the use of immunosuppressive therapy, uh, systemic retinoids, oral retinoids, biologic therapy, and surgical interventions, part of what I consider aggressive treatment is also the multidisciplinary approach, um, which incorporates the care monitoring, education, uh, and evaluation of pediatric patients with hidradenitis superativa in a range of specialties, um, including um, psychologists, mental health counselors, um, nutritionists, and uh, dietary experts, endocrino- endocrinologists when necessary, um, as well as other uh, valuable specialties that bring more to the team than just a dermatologic approach, um, primarily. Um, So as you all know, hydrodinitis is a chronic debilitating inflammatory disease um, with rates of progression um, that tend to sort of outweigh sort of the stasis when it comes to the longevity and the chronicity of the disease. And because of that, I support more aggressive treatment as early as medically necessary for pediatric patients with this. Um, I believe I come from more of a practical approach where Most of the patients I'm seeing are already in that moderate to severe or severe phase. And that has a lot to do with access to care issues, um, especially in the at-risk populations who are more prone to things like uh, food deserts, obesity, um, limited access to primary, if not specialist care. Um, So a lot of the the treatments that I think are recommended beyond the topicals, And things like that are usually first line by the time a patient walks in my door with hs i
1: I think you bring up great points like uh that kind of multidisciplinary care is sometimes not available in every setting and that makes it a big challenge because of course like many of these patients might benefit especially with the many comorbidities that we see in patients with hs uh from this approach but Sometimes we kind of encounter them on our own in our pediatric dermatology practices. And we have to think of so much more than the skin. If we don't have kind of the ability to see these patients in a multidisciplinary clinic, what kind of role do you think that we need to play to uh, be able to fulfill all this patient's needs?
3: So I I think that's a really good question. Um, And that is a difficult situation when when it arises. Um, I certainly don't think I could practice pediatric dermatology if I didn't have my Rolodex of mental health counselors and other colleagues who are experienced in this. Um, But when access is a problem to those specialties as well, um, you know, there might be other interventions or other social system caveats that we might be able to include to get patients and their families rides to wherever they need to get to, especially if it's a transportation issue, make sure that they have access to follow-up appointments, Um, you know, sort of doing uh, multidisciplinary clinics for HS, where other providers can come into one clinic and screen and see patients all at the same time to make it easier for one family to meet with multiple different providers is also an option. Um, I I think that answers your question, but let me know if I did it.
1: Yeah, no, I think we're seeing more and more this kind of uh, multidisciplinary clinics, especially in the bigger academic centers, and that is great for our patients. I think one of the things that we uh, showed in our paper, but also has been shown in other manuscripts in the literature, is that by the time our pediatric patients are presenting and get a diagnosis, they already have kind of more chronic damage in their skin. They already have scars. They might already present with fistulas. Uh, especially this uh, age is so vulnerable because uh, it interferes with their quality of life, they're attending school. Uh, they're, if there is odor or discharge, this is debilitating for them. So, how do you uh, think we should be approaching this more aggressively when we start managing them? What else can we do about yeah. it?
3: Well, you know, I think it's easy for us to say, you know, skin comes first as dermatologists, but personally, I believe um, a lot of the anxiety, depression, thoughts of self-harm and harming others are, are things that, you know, and also going back to your question, before, need to be screened for. I think these are things that even a dermatologist can sort of look at on their own without requesting the help of their colleagues, examining quality of life and the impact of life that this condition creates in children who don't already, you know, have a supportive environment or supportive system in place that encourages them to sort of, you know, get the help they need or get their parents to get them the help they need. Um, continue to go, continuing to go to school or be productive and active in middle and high school is, is already challenging now with the age of, you know, um, online classes and everything like that. And, and, and that might be a benefit educationally for kids, but sort of that social withdrawal that a condition like this can lead to um, is devastating. And I think we're starting to see the impact of that now. Um, post-COVID, where we are seeing more anxiety and depression, as well as, unfortunately, suicidal ideation and suicide in these highly at-risk ages between the uh, 12 and 19. Um, just kind of going on what you said, you know, you're absolutely right. And I think this was from your paper. Um, you know, The average age of onset in the pediatric patient is approximately 12 and a half. And the time to diagnosis is around 14.4 years of age. So you're looking at almost a two-year window of chronic, you know, progression of inflammatory conditions. So that practically speaking, you know, my my case in point for the argument is that by the time they walk into my door, I think some of the conservative treatments might be included, but it's usually, you know, time to start thinking about more aggressive therapies. And that goes not just when they walk into my door, but you guys, as as I'm sure, you know, you get those consultations at three o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, you know, my daughter has, you know, a really painful lesion in the inner axilla and we're in the emergency room and they want to incise and drain it. And you're screaming, no, 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 don't let them cut into it. We have other things. Um, so, you know, I think we can only rely on ourselves so much. We also have to do our part to aggressively educate our peers, especially in urgent care and emergent care settings. Um, because unfortunately, a lot of the things that are done to these patients before they have a correct diagnosis can actually exacerbate hydratinitis worse. So I think a lot of aggressive education is important too. Um, for our pediatric colleagues as well.
1: Yeah, and and I think we are so limited by the approved treatments that we have for hydradenitis. So probably right now, the only FDA approved medication for pediatric patients, uh, and it's just for those 12 and over, is adalinumab. So this is, we are considering for the purposes of this discussion, one of the aggressive treatments. Uh, what is your experience? Do you think that this makes a huge difference for our patients?
3: I think like with everything else, I think there is a subset of pediatric patients that are excellent responders. I think there's a subset that are average responders, and I think there's a subset that are non-responders. But what I will say is I think the advent and the introduction of biologics, particularly this TNF-alpha inhibitor, has sort of moved the research and education about hydradenitis supertiva into the direction it needs to go. As we've seen with other conditions like psoriasis and atopic dermatitis, it wasn't until we started performing blockades on these inflammatory um, cytokine cascades that we were better able to see which particular cytokines and interleukins were involved so that future trials can take place with you know a legitimate scientific hypothesis saying, well, it might not be TNF-alpha, it might be IL-17 or TH-17. And I think because of that sort of aggressive approach, we are seeing more, um, you know, proof of concept studies come out now for HS, so that hopefully in the near future, there will be better medications available, but likely along the same line of an aggressive approach to them.
1: Yeah, and and I think some of these patients, like, um, especially those that don't do great what we have to offer now, like sometimes end up. Uh, being sent to uh, surgery for consideration Mm -hmm. of surgical interventions. When do you think that we should be considering that for our patients?
3: I think that's an excellent question. I think it also is going to be case by case, but I can think of at least a handful of my pediatric patients in just the last two, three years alone that weren't able to lift their arm um, because of the severity of their condition, who are already on things like infliximab and adalimumab at the same time, who've already been on several courses of clindamycin, rifampin, um, acetretin, isotretinoin, I think there's a point in time where even the aggressive medical treatments aren't going to relieve that pain and return a sort of normal functional status to these kids' lives. You know, it, and I agree with with what's been said prior. You know, I think, you know recommending weight loss and exercise to me has always befuddled the mind because I, I don't think those are things you can do when you've got nine or 10 out of 10 pain on a daily basis. The inability to raise one's arm or open one's legs or lift one's breasts just to wash in those areas usually to me sends a profound message that it's time to sort of step up the game and be be a little more aggressive and start thinking about surgical interventions.
1: Yeah, and one of the things that sometimes lead, is left unaddressed in our patients is their pain. Um, and sometimes we need to be quite aggressive to be able to manage pain. Um, do you have any tips on how to um, address pain for uh, more severe patients?
3: So while I would rely on my colleagues in pain medicine to help with the pharmacological aspect, I also look to my, um, my pediatric psychologists who do a lot of non, I would say, Western medicine approaches such as meditation, um, you know, desensitization therapies, even hypnosis, sleep therapy. Um, there's so many different avenues to be able to kind of turn this pain into something that's a little more livable for these kids. Um, you know, it's not just about prescribing pain medications or anti-inflammatory sometimes. Sometimes it's really about trying to modify the behavior or the response to behaviors that uh, the pediatric patients have when they're going through this. And I think that's something that's a crutch that we can lean on for some time. Um, but, you know, I, like I said, I think a multidisciplinary approach with pain management experts, along with, you know, psychologists and mental health counselors, is really the best way to manage this going forward, at least while we're waiting for some of the aggressive medical or surgical interventions to take place. Because, as we were discussing before, you know, sometimes access to a surgeon who's willing to do, you know, an excision or a de roofing in a pediatric patient is, is difficult. You know, I think we as pediatric dermatologists try to be the best at everything, including medical intervention surgical interventions um, and some of these other things that sort of go outside of our lane but you know I think what we want is for these kids to have access to the expertise and care that they need um, so you know like we were saying before it's difficult for them to get into a surgeon that might be able to do something like this as well
1: thank you so much dr. Andrews I think you bring lots of great points to to the discussion so I think that we will uh, conclude our second episode here. And, and uh, please joining us in the next uh, episode for further discussion.
0: Welcome back to our third and final installment in this Points of Discussion podcast about hydratinitis superativa being treated aggressively. I'll turn it back over to you, Dr. Lara Corrales.
1: So thank you so much for joining us for our third episode discussing management of HS in pediatric patients. So we're here now with Dr. Kirkorian and Dr. Andrews. And um, there are a few things that we still would like to kind of chat about and share our uh, experiences. And one is kind of we are lacking consensus guidelines. And uh, consensus guidelines for management of HS is something that uh, we have adult guidelines, but we're still lacking pediatric guidelines. Um, do you think that this is something that we should be working towards to kind of put together in the next years? Um, what do you think is needed?
3: well, shameless plug for Pedra, obviously, but I think some of that groundwork has already started. I think you do have very passionate and productive experts in the field of pediatric HS, which 10 years ago was not a field. Um, so I think we've definitely laid the groundwork to establish, you know, who's doing the work, where's the data coming from, who's gathering the data, what can we look at with the data that we have. So I think that it's, the, the seeds have certainly been planted for consensus guidelines.
1: Do you think that there's any specific research that we're still lacking or that we should be seeking to complete to be able to improve the uh, knowledge that we currently have for the management of HS?
2: I would like to know whether um, early treatment prevents disease progression. Now, I don't know how you're going to prove that. I guess unless you have a control, but um, and that I don't know how ethical that would be. But um, I do think if we gave our biologics in the early stage disease, you know, to enough patients, we should be able to answer that. Um, so that's one question I have. I'd like to see drugs besides. Um, adalimumab be FDA approved um, because they don't work in all people and you know drugs like infliximab which are off label I think can be more effective they're weight based and so on Um, and then I'd like people to do more work on um, lifestyle modification I know I'm a broken record here but how do you actually help people to do these things is there any evidence um, or should we be using drugs like the weight loss medications that are FDA approved in adults in children um in these diseases does that is that going to work
1: any other thoughts about that uh easy
3: yeah you know i think uh a registry for hs patients if that's possible for pedi- obviously pediatric patients would be good uh at some point because that way we could sort of follow them over a long period of time and kind of monitor progress to answer some of these brilliant questions that dr kerkorian raised about you know whether or not weight loss is a central pillar to this as we know there's about 20% of patients with HS that have normal BMI. Um, do some of these medical, surgical, or, or you know, varying interventions last? Or, and if they last, how long is the effect going to persist beyond treatment or treatment relapses? Um, you know, I think there's, there's so much we don't know with kids because, you know, getting them in is one thing, treating them is another. But then following them long term usually becomes difficult as they either age out of our clinics and then go into the sort of the adult dermatology world. Um, having tried some of these, you know, aggressive or or conservative treatments. So longitudinal studies, I think, are are certainly in order um, to give us a better sort of um, baseline foundation awareness of what we're dealing with here.
1: So one question that um, might be in some of our minds is, uh, do you think early diagnosis does make a difference in whether or not we decide to use aggressive versus non-aggressive treatments?
3: Oh, no, absolutely. I, I am for I. That, that, so as hard as it was for you, yes, I mean, it was hard for me, too, because fortunately, a majority of the patients I do see don't come in for, you know, mild HS. They come in for something else. Like if I get a new patient with psoriasis, I'm looking in their armpits. I'm looking between the breasts and the legs, because I think there's that sort of cross relatedness to that. Mm-hmm. If I see a kid who has acanthosis nigricans and who's on you know, spironolactone for PCOS or something like that, I'm going to check the armpits for HS. I think a lot of times I'm able to find it early enough, and then I do rely on those sort of non-aggressive therapies. Unfortunately, I think there's that sort of phase where it kind of calms down a little bit, and maybe it stays stable for a while, but then there's just a progression and a progression of the disease. But no, I am not against a conservative approach at all. Um, I just think, you know, I think we're relying on our ability to get access to these kids a little too much mm-hmm. um, because it's not even the fact that they, they don't seek medical help when it starts or when it's asymptomatic. It's just, like I said before, they're seeing doctors who are calling it acne of your armpit or, you know, folliculitis or, you know, abscesses and let's drain them and put in a drain because you've got an infectious abscess. I mean, I think all of these things just kind of compound it further so that when they finally do see one of us, you know, it's already beyond some of these conservative treatments, but there's rarely a Pete's patient, regardless of their level of severity. I don't put on BP wash, topical clindamycin, and like a topical retinoid, if I see the tombstone and comedone. So, and I think there's, you know, multiple levels of of treatment that you could do at the same time, but then there's some things you can't do at the same time, obviously, like oral antibiotics and isotretinoin and stuff like that.
1: So another kind of question that we could ask is, what do you think has brought HS to the forefront in research right now? Like, why are we paying more attention to HS?
3: Well, I will say briefly, and I think Irene, you could probably correct me because you probably, I'm I'm sure you have the data. I think, you know, there might be a significant correlation with obesity and overweight. um, And as that increases in the pediatric population dramatically, at least in the United States, Because I'm sure some other developed countries, I I think it's becoming more common. I certainly didn't see this as much when I was in my dermatology residency during my PETs rotations, which was only seven years ago as I am now.
1: But I think there's also more awareness. I think like it's people recognizing it more and making it, uh, I think, especially for pediatric patients, they just were kind of... uh, diagnosed as infections when they were younger and then as adults they got diagnosed but we were missing some of those early diagnoses. we know that obesity is the most common comorbidity that we see in these patients but there are probably other drivers genetics and other things that uh drive this disease
2: yeah and i think obviously if drugs can help the disease that Drives some interest, although that can't be everything because, you know, we know from atopic dermatitis, devastating disease too, when it's severe, it was like, you know, in no man's land, When when even when I was in residency not that long ago, and now there's all these therapeutics. So hopefully people are recognizing that there are targets that can drive discovery, but this one's going to be harder because it's not just going to be medicine. It's going to have to be also surgical and lifestyle together and yeah. Real I don't think
1: we have the right medication yet. I don't think at the No, no, it. not
3: even close. No, no, I, I don't think,
1: don't think we have the right doses. I don't think that we have the right target. I think that there we're still missing part of it. It's not like psoriasis, like psoriasis, like we have the right drugs and we use them and they work amazing with HS. It's not the same.
3: Well, it, it took time to get to where we are with psoriasis. That's why I'm hopeful for HS. I think, yeah. you know, like I said, I think it took a, a couple of rounds of whack that mole to see which one goes down, which one pops back up again, figure out, I mean, you know, this is clearly an inflammatory process. I do believe there might be a genetic predisposition. I don't know if gene therapy is going to come sooner than some of the protein therapy that we have, um, or some of the cytokine blocking. I mean, this is, this is definitely something I think with what we know now, a treatable disease, we just don't have those treatments yet, but it is going to be multi multifactorial. Like Dr. Kerkorian was saying, I think, you know, yeah.
1: So what else do you think we should be doing as pediatric dermatologists to raise awareness? I don't know if you have thoughts about that.
2: I was wondering about Google searches at one point. I was thinking about doing a study trying to do like some Google search words, which I'm sure keywords and I haven't searched PubMed, but I'm sure someone's done this. But I think if patients Google boil and armpit or groin, um, HS should come up rather than, you know, who knows what comes up. So that would be one thing. And then working with our ERs especially is, is critical. So I think getting the word out, um, whether that be presenting at ER conferences, pediatrics conferences, or just having that discussion. Our ER actually does quite a good job. I mean, they very frequently diagnose HS and refer to us. Um, same with our surgeons, but we're at a specialized children's hospital and that's not necessarily the norm. So um, I think that would be some, some thoughts I had.
1: Any other thoughts, E.C. Anything
2: else
3: we're not doing to do? You know, I was thinking there's always the double-edged sword of social media, which I know is kind of a hot topic, but I think I've seen some things on on other conditions that people have and talk about as patient advocates on social media, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever those other ones I don't know about. Um, So I think, you know, if we can recruit or retain some, patients who feel comfortable talking about the condition and getting it out there for not just, you know, our pediatricians in some of these larger hospitals, but our local pediatricians, um, you know, and uh, other specialties like endocrinologists that might be seeing some of these comorbidities, but not understanding that there's a derm component to some of them too. I think that that might help spread some of the awareness about this so that kids can get in sooner than later. And I think, you know, not to upset my other 90% 90% of colleagues who are general dermatologists, but then also to make them aware that pediatric HS is a, a real thing. I still work with providers that don't see HS in kids. And I'm like, no, you see it. You just don't actually see it. <laughs> They're not really, I'm putting two and two together often. Um, so I think re, you know, establishing something at our national local meetings um, that are general dermatologists is also something an important av- venue. That we can address some of these things
1: completely agree i think we're still under diagnosing and sometimes misdiagnosing and and we need to continue to build that awareness to uh have it in everybody's radar um any other um, thoughts or anything else that uh regarding management that we should be um discussing
2: yeah, I had a thought, which was, you know, I think we underutilize the surgical procedures. Um, Dr. Andrews mentioned this, you know, really nicely in his section, but I don't feel super comfortable doing um, unroofing procedures. We do have, luckily, Dr. Okoye, who's the chair of how. and some people in D.C. who will do that. And of course we have surgeons. Um, But I think it would be nice to see more data on surgical procedures in children because I think we are underutilizing them and therefore we're not getting the benefit we might get of our drugs. You know, if we have these tracks, we really, I just don't see how our drugs can work effectively in the setting of that chronic inflammatory biofilm stuff um, that you get sort of roto-rooter out. So if someone from our field took it on, it was just difficult because you know, procedures in children are different than procedures in adults, even adolescent children. And so it would be great if one of our procedural peds derm, you know, got passionate about it, started doing these cases. We do have OR access, at least at our institution. So, you know, that doesn't have to be a barrier, which it might be like, if you're talking about a 12 or 13 year old, but that is something that it would be great to see if that made a big impact.
1: Yeah. And I don't know if it's the same for you guys, but like for us, uh our plastic surgeons or general surgeons are not uh comfortable managing many of these patients so we sometimes make referrals and they are uh sometimes rejected or other other times they are seen but then they don't know what to do and it would be amazing to have guidance from uh surgical experts to manage our pediatric patients as well um so definitely we need a
2: champion in this
3: area
2: yeah yeah another thing is the hormonal therapies we talked about them a little bit but you know do we do should we max be maxing them out in the children you know like our ocp spironolactone non-hormonal treatments like metformin i just feel a little lost as to when to implement I, i mean i feel comfortable with the ocps and spironolactone but less confident on the metabolic drugs and so um, that would be helpful in a consensus guidelines. I think we would use it more when it was more clear, like what the dosing should be, what we should be screening for and so on. Um, because it, it would be great to do it in a multidisciplinary clinic and do it with peds endocrine. And that's something we might be able to do at a children's hospital. But most people are seeing a doctor not at a children's hospital. So we don't right. want to restrict these medications, you know, to the five people in children's hospitals. We really want right. to be comfortable in the community. So I don't know, Izzy, if you have thoughts about that.
3: No, and then that's, I think that's one of the, one of the hardest things for me going from uh, academic practice to private practice was um, getting access to some of these techniques and sort of building that dynamic uh, cohort of colleagues who can sort of assist in the areas that I can't, you know, continue or carry on a treatment. Um, I think one of the things that was interesting that you had said um, about getting other surgeons, plastic surgeons to to kind of work on these kids, you know, it's frustrating. And as a provider, sometimes I just want to throw something. Um, you know, it always amazes me how a surgeon will cut open anything except for HS. And I think a lot of time, again, going back to the same issue, which is education, they believe in their hearts that these are infectious boils. So, again, just boiling it down to the simplest of education and, and sort of explaining to some of our colleagues is, is really where I think a lot of my focus is. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's a tricky situation because it's hard, obviously it's very hard for the patients, very hard for the family, it's a very visceral condition. And I, so I think a lot of people just want to turn their back on that, um, you know, putting these people, kids and adults at a severe, you know, societal disadvantage because they can't control this, these odors that are coming out of them. It's not like they can just take a shower and make this go away. Um, so I think really boiling this down to how much psychologically and socially this really impacts people is what we need to do to build you know, a consensus amongst providers to get these kids and the help that they need.
1: And I think you make a great point because it goes back to education. We also need to educate our uh, surgical colleagues on this disease just to make sure that they are also comfortable providing their care to patients and, and kind of not realizing that this is not uh, a bacterial infection and that (coughs) even if they intervene, this is not infectious in kind of its root. Um, So yeah, lots of education that we need to move forward with.
3: We have a lot of work to do for sure.
1: Lots of work to do. So I, I would really want to thank you for your time putting this together and sharing your thoughts and experience with us. It has been great chatting with you and um, looking forward to more collaborations and education and research. Thank you.
3: Thank you for having us.
0: Thank you so very much to our session moderator Dr. Irene Lara Corrales and thank you so much to our guest speakers Dr. Yasmin Kakorian and Dr. Izzy Andrews. To hear more points of discussion programming, be sure to subscribe to the Pedra Pearls podcast channel so you can receive automatic downloads. You can find us in Spotify, iTunes, and Google. You can also find more information about this and our other educational programs online at www.pedraresearch/education. I would like to thank our sponsors for this program, AbbVie Inc., Eli Lilly & Company, Fe Genzyme, and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals for their support of this independent medical education program. PEDRA is solely responsible for all program content and the selection of all presenters, authors, moderators, and faculty. Tune in next time. Thanks so much for listening.